Hi, everyone. This is Shreya. We are partnering with ACP, the American College of Physicians, for CME credit. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes. So if you're in training, send this episode to your attending or someone else who could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. And with that, cue the intro. Hey, Cindy, have you ever listened to that old game show, 20 Questions? 20 what? Is it animal or mineral? Is it a living American man? Could I hear it at the opera? Is it as big as a bowling ball? Would it match one of Crosby's shirts? Yes, everyone is playing 20 Questions. You probably know how the game works. I mean, it has been around for ages, although I do think it was this radio show in the 1940s that really helped to popularize it. So the setup, if you're not familiar, is that listeners write in with an object, and this could be a thing, a place, a person, real fictional, and a panel of experts would try to guess the object just by asking yes or no questions. And uh, having listened to some of these clips, I'll say some of these questions are better than others. Is it ordinarily used in the home? Yes, they have them in every home. How they're used in every home, I'm not going to comment on. But they have them in every home. Miss Renard? Does it have moving parts? Uh, not this thing itself. No, I wouldn't say so. Vandavena? Is it normally to be found in the kitchen? Oh, I guess they have them in the kitchen. They're not as interesting there as they are other places. <laughs> Mr. Palazzi? Could I see my mother-in-law in it? Well, I don't know your mode of life. I rather hope not. That's nine questions. So the now. audience is laughing here because the object in this case is a keyhole. Uh, but that last mother-in-law misfire aside, if you listen to enough of these clips, you'll realize that the questions are actually quite good. It's the same panel of five people from episode to episode, and they really do become experts at it. The vast majority of the time, someone gets the answer, and usually without needing anywhere close to all 20 questions. Bobby? Is it uh, rather something, nothing that is surrounded by something other than something solid? Yes, it's... it's keyhole. It's a keyhole. So I'll tell you what listening to this game show reminded me of. A few years ago, I was at SHM and I was watching Gupreet Dhaliwal, you know, the famed diagnostician from UCSF, and he was solving a case in front of a live audience. And at the end, he concludes, I, I believe this is leptospirosis. And of course, he's right. right? The serologist come back positive. And I remember hearing that, that exact same kind of applause, that mixture of astonishment and, and wonder. And it's not coincidental I think there really are a lot of similarities between what happens in this game and what we do as diagnosticians. I mean, think about it. When we first meet a patient, they could have anything, one or several of the literally thousands of diseases of the human body. And our job is basically to gather information and to use it to accurately and efficiently winnow that list down to just one or at most a couple of different possibilities that we can directly then test for and or treat. The major difference, thankfully, uh, is that there isn't a limit to the number of questions we can ask. But there is. I mean, if you think about it, every question has a cost. It consumes your time. It consumes the patient's energy and patience. Sometimes I feel like the more questions I ask, the less my patients trust me. Um, asking the wrong questions can definitely lead my work up down the wrong path. And if it's a test I'm ordering, that has a dollar value attached to it. Yeah, no, that I didn't think about it that way, but that's a great point. And I think all the more reason to ask ourselves, 
how do we get better at this? How do we master the game of medical 20 questions? Well, on this episode, we're going to explore this side of diagnostic reasoning. As usual, we've got an interesting, challenging case for you to try and solve, but instead of giving you all the case data at once, like we've done in pretty much every episode up until this point, we're going to present you with just the very beginning of a case and then ask you to think about what information you'd want next and in what order. And afterward, we'll listen as our discussant for this episode tackles the case in the same way. With Core IM, welcome to Hoofbeats. I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fain. And stay with us for the case. A 45-year-old woman is admitted to the hospital because of persistent bleeding from a surgical incision site on her left lower eyelid. And here's the story. Five days earlier, she had undergone an elective excision of a chalazion, which at the time seemed to go uneventfully. Uh, in case you've forgotten what a chalazion is, it's a, a little nodule of granulomatous inflammation, which is often left over after a bacterial infection of, of a meibomian gland. So two days after that procedure, she developed oozing from the incision site that persisted despite compression. She presented to an outside hospital's emergency department, and there, the bleeding continued, even though they held pressure for over two hours. Eventually, the bleeding was controlled with cauterization. They released her home, but over the next two days, she continued to experience intermittent oozing from the site. Uh, it was controllable with compression right up until the day of admission, when suddenly the bleeding became profuse and intractable, and that prompted her to present to the ED. And that's what we'll start with. What else would you want to know? Keep in mind, we did not specify what order things had to be asked. You can ask for more history, a physical exam finding, a lab test, anything. Now, you can ask, but obviously, <laughs> we can't answer you. We can't reach out to you directly. Though, if you're interested, let us know, because maybe in the future we could find a way to make this interactive somehow through social media votes or what have you. But for now, for this episode, what we did was we gathered up some of our Core IM colleagues and we recorded them taking this challenge together as a group. None of them knew the diagnosis. So we'll reveal in stepwise fashion the questions they asked and the answers, and I suspect those will be representative of what most of you listeners would want to hear. You're on the honor system here. We're trusting you to pause after each piece of information and think about what you will ask next. Mm -hmm. Now on our crack team, our fellow internists, Amy O, oh, Marty Freed, and Shreya Trivedi, Shreya, unfortunately, did not have her audio turned on, and I'm not even going to comment on the irony of the chief executive producer of our podcast not forgetting to turn on her sound. Joining them was Neil Shapiro, whom some of you might even remember as the discussant from Who Beats Episode 4, the one where we torture you by choosing a case with an ambiguous final answer. Yeah, Neil still sounded pretty bitter about that. See death. See death. <laughs> 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 it was. It was seated. We took the stool. Now I feel better. <laughs> Not the diagnosis, but her stool was positive for seated. <laughs> so, once Neil got serious, the team started off by asking two questions about her history. First, they wanted to know was she on anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents? And the answer there is no. In fact, she was not taking any medicines at all. Their second question was. Was this her first episode of abnormal bleeding in her lifetime? And it turns out, no, not quite. Aside from this current episode of bleeding, she had noticed that over the past year, she had been having unusually heavy menses. Before, her flow would never last for more than a few days. 
but now she would be bleeding through multiple pads a day for more than a week at a time. Lin and the team jumped straight to the labs. They asked for a complete blood count, which showed that she was severely anemic to 6.5 with an NCV of 79. But her white cell count, differential, and her platelet count were all normal.、Mm-hmm. For question four, they asked to see her PT, INR, and PTT, and these were both normal. I guess I should have charged them for two questions instead of just one. Oh well. <laughs> Next, the team asked whether factor levels had been sent, and yes, they were all normal. Two, six, seven, eight, nineteen. <laughs> so, if platelets aren't going to explain the bleeding and the coagulation cascade. Is it a, like is is presumably normal? Either it's normal, or there's something about the measurement is normal. Are there other things like von Willebrand's factor, or any other like? Oh gosh, <laughs> you didn't give us you didn't give us the renal function. I mean, is it possible that she has uremic dysfunctional platelets?、Um, her B one and creatinine are normal. Darn. <laughs> Okay, so she's not uremic. That's question six. And we also heard Marty there asking about von Willebrand disease.、Uh, though when I asked him what specific tests he actually wanted,、uh, all I heard was a long groan over the Skype call,、uh, followed by some keyboard clicking, which I assume was Googling. And full disclosure, I would have done the same.、Uh, but to save you folks the trouble, just to review. Recall that there are different types of von Willebrand's disease, and in some, it's the level of the von Willebrand factor that's low, and in others, the level is fine, but the von Willebrand factor itself is dysfunctional. So the tests that you'll want to order、uh, to check for von Willebrand's disease are the、uh, von Willebrand antigen level, the von Willebrand activity, and a factor VIII activity, since von Willebrand's factor is supposed to bind to and protect factor VIII from degradation. Bottom line: all of these were normal in this patient. The team asked for a peripheral smear. This came back pretty much what you would expect: microcytic hypochromic red cells of varying sizes, but no schistocytes or other abnormal red blood cells. The white cells look normal.、Mm-hmm. So at this point in the challenge, with all of the tests coming back basically normal, the team drifted back towards the patient's history. For question nine, they asked whether she was eating anything unusual, like herbals. The answer: no. For question ten, they asked whether there was a family history of abnormal bleeding. The answer again: no.、Mm-hmm. The team asked about her surgical history. So it turns out that she had had a C-section eleven years earlier, when she was thirty-four and at eight months gestation, because of a non-reassuring fetal heart rate, and this went uneventfully. Five years earlier, her second child had also come out by elective C-section again without any problems. They asked whether she had a history of miscarriages, but no, none. She just had those two healthy pregnancies. So that's twelve questions down, and here Marty pretty much summarizes how everyone on the team is feeling about the case so far. So, and and in in. You know, transparency here.、Uh, I am just going through the up-to-date article on bleeding disorders right now. <laughs> so finally, with test results unrevealing, history seemingly exhausted, the team turns to their last resort. They perform a physical exam. <laughs> Our physician ancestors are surely rolling in their graves. 
So specifically, the team starts by asking whether there are any rashes, hemarthroses, or other skin abnormalities that are visible. The answer, none, nor does she recall having had any in the recent past. They asked whether she had any neurologic signs on exam, weakness, paresthesia, and so on, but no, none of those were present. Mm -hmm. We're up to our 15th question. The team asks whether there is anything abnormal on exam. I actually don't even know if that's cheating or not, but indeed, there is an abnormal finding. She has palpable non-tender hepatomegaly three centimeters below the costal margin. Obviously, then, they ask for a hepatic panel. The results? The transaminase levels are normal at 37 and 20, but the alphas is markedly elevated at 782. The total bilirubin over direct bilirubin is 1.8 over 1.2. Total protein and albumin are normal, 6.8 over 4. They follow that up with a GGT, which comes back significantly elevated to four times the upper limit of normal. They ask for an abdominal CT. That shows an enlarged liver, 22 centimeters in sagittal dimension. It looks smooth and homogeneous, without masses. The vasculature is patent, and the bile does look normal. There's no lymphadenopathy. Marty asked whether a bone marrow biopsy was performed and whether it showed myelodysplasia. Now, I can confirm that a bone marrow biopsy was performed, but it did not show myelodysplasia. And that's it. That's 20 questions. And uh, not going to mince words here, the team was confused. Neil was the first to sum up his thoughts. Yeah, right? I mean, I think what I'm struggling with is that the coags are normal, the plants are normal, um, and not on any medications or uremia to make the platelets non-functional. You know, all the markers that we have of bleeding disorders are not there, and all you have is the liver being big, and but if the coags, the PT being normal... Something like primary biliary cirrhosis giving you just or autoimmune hepatitis just giving you elevated alphas. Um, that doesn't really explain things for me. That's why I think I'm feeling quiet. So what do you think? Did you get the diagnosis 10 questions ago and are now listening smugly? Was there a question you were screaming at them to ask and they didn't? Well, finalize your thoughts, because after the break, we'll hear how our expert discussant asked his questions and how he solved the case. So for this episode, we sat down with Dr. Lloyd Wasserman. Dr. Wasserman is a general internist and NYU faculty here at Bellevue Hospital. And remember, he's starting at the very beginning with just the initial case stem that we gave you. He doesn't know anything about what the core IM team asked about. So the anemia, the normal platelets, the normal coags, the surgical history, alkphos, hepatomegaly, none of that. So tell tell me if um, I remember correctly, she's a 45-year-old woman who had a persistent chalazion Mm -hmm. uh, in a lower lid, went, uh, had an excision or a debridement or whatever they did, and then she had delayed bleeding and it kept happening. So Dr. Wasserman started off the same way that our team did. First, he asked whether the patient was on any medications that would affect bleeding and recall that no, she was not. And then he explored her bleeding history. So did, did she, she never had menorrhagia or metorrhagia before this? Before this, the start of this year of this illness? No, yeah. Okay. She did not. Other bleeding things I'd want to... Did she ever have any other bleeding? Protracted bleeding after other minor procedures like dental procedures? Mm-hmm. She doesn't really get routine dental care. She couldn't think of any minor procedures she had done. Okay. Um, does she bleed a lot when she flosses? 
Or does she floss? <laughs> like most of us, or many of us. That's a yeah. great question. I don't think this was answered. Okay, or when she brushes her teeth, even. No. Okay, and any uh, bleeding when she has a bowel movement? None. Uh, bruising, things like that. No bruising, okay. historically or recently. Okay. So, you know, um, it makes a congenital problem that causes bleeding. Um, you know, they're rare. Uh, it would probably be one of the first things they'd say to me if, if they came in with bleeding, but it makes uh, a late diagnosis of a congenital disorder less likely. In a game of 20 questions, mathematically speaking, the ideal strategy is to try to remove half of the possibilities with each question. Like, if I'm thinking of an integer between one and a million, and you're trying to guess what that is, you're not going to ask me, is it seven? You'd be better off asking, is the number less than 500,000? Or is the number even? Right? Cut the number of possibilities in half 20 times in a row, and you could theoretically distinguish between 2 to the 20th or over a million possibilities. And to put that in perspective, remember there are only 70,000 diagnoses in the ICD-10 total. And let's be honest, we're never going to see most of those. Did you know that W55.41 is ICD-10 forbidden by pig? There's even one forbidden by pig, comma, initial encounter, W55.41XA. What does that even mean? Anyway, my point is, expert clinicians understand which lines of questioning will enable them to most rapidly and efficiently narrow their problem space. So we just heard Dr. Wasserman ask six questions in rapid succession, but Really, if you think about it, they were all essentially different ways of getting at one deeper and crucial question. Is this patient's bleeding disorder a congenital problem or an acquired one? And by concluding that it's an acquired disorder, most likely, he's effectively bisected his problem space. He next tries to cut that space by narrowing down which component of the hemostatic system is malfunctioning in this patient. So when someone has abnormal bleeding... Um I think there are a few categories, right? So one is uh, dysfunction of platelets, which tends to be uh, tends to occur at a time of trauma. If it's trauma related, it's not going to be later and then recurrent. Um, and the platelet defects can be quantitative or qualitative, like storage defects, von Willebrand's disease, etc. Then there are coagulopathies. Uh, which can be at the time of trauma or occur later and, and be coming and going. Um, uh, and th those, those are basically disorders of hemostasis. Acquired versus congenital, medication-related versus unrelated, and now platelets versus the coagulation cascade. What we see emerging here is Dr. Wasserman's diagnostic schema for abnormal bleeding, though he himself doesn't use that term explicitly. Now, We've talked about diagnostic schemata in prior episodes without really defining what they are, but chances are that you already use them, even if you're not familiar with that term. For example, do you think about acute kidney injury in terms of pre-renal, intrinsic renal, and post-renal causes? Do you divide hypercalcemia into PTH-mediated versus PTH-independent processes? Those are schemata. Simply put, they're mental frameworks a clinician uses to organize their knowledge about a defined problem. Almost everyone inherits from medical training a collection of somewhat generic schemata for basic problems like AKI and hypercalcemia, but with experience, awareness of context, and deeper understanding of pathophysiology, the schemata of an expert clinician can become highly personalized and consequently much, much more powerful. 
Let me step back and say I should not immediately assume this is due from a disorder of platelet function or coagulation. You can also have uh, soft tissue disorders, right? So um, although scurvy doesn't usually present with with conjunctival bleeding after chalazion, they can get postoperative bleeding because they don't make hydroxyproline and they have soft tissue and vascular abnormalities associated with that. They tend to get problems lower down. They can have GI bleeding, gum bleeding. Uh, and uh, uh, so other soft tissue vascular abnormalities that are not due to the coagulation or platelet systems that can be associated with bruising or bleeding, you know, vasculitis, obviously. We diagnose it by finding palpable purpura. And um, uh, um, amyloid is one, right? So she's she's young, she that we know she doesn't have a chronic inflammatory disorder. She's not so young that it's it's impossible for her to have AL amyloid. If she has some other vascular lesion, like could the you know could this chalazion uh, uh, be a vascular tumor that was mistaken for a chalazion? And it would be interesting to see if they sent it for pathology. Okay, and what did it show? <laughs> We'll, we'll get there. Earlier, we heard the members of our team divide the causes of abnormal bleeding into quantitative versus qualitative platelet disorders and coagulopathies caused by factor deficiencies or inhibitors. But we see here that Dr. Wasserman's schema includes a third group, vascular and soft tissue disorders, something that was never brought up by our team. And this leads to our discussion's first and most significant deviation from what our team did. He asks for the pathology report of the excised chalazion. And believe it or not, this was one of the definitive diagnostic tests that led to the final answer. And just to be clear, this was five minutes into the interview. Right. And he had asked two questions, or two lines of questioning, medications and bleeding history. So me laughing at the end there, that was a mixture of surprise and uh, slight panic. What, what do we do? He figured it out too early. So in the interest of continuing the exercise, we simply told him that the pathology report wasn't immediately available and to please continue thinking aloud. And the same goes for you folks listening. That wasn't a lie. In real life, the path report did take time. So his next set of questions was actually focused on making sure the patient was okay. He wanted to know about vital signs, orthostatics, hemoglobin. After that, he starts exploring the other categories in his schema. He asks for the platelet count and the complete hemogram. As you recall, she was anemic, but platelet count was normal. And again, it doesn't really sound to me like a platelet disorder because it's it's late and recurring. Although menorrhagia uh, or menometorrhagia, I think, is typical of, of von Willebrand's disease. Since it's late and recurrent bleeding, and that makes me think more of a bleeding disorder or a local soft tissue disorder. Instead of looking down the von Willebrand syndrome pathway, uh, again, if she did have a pathology, I would call. <laughs> um, I would look there to see, is there something else there, mm-hmm. right, that's left behind? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can't do that, then I think, uh, uh, since she's, then I think I'm going to start doing assay, coagulation assays. Mm-hmm. Just to point out quickly, this is the second time that he's emphasized the delayed onset and the recurrent nature of this patient's bleeding. 
It's a critical clue that the problem lies not in the formation of the platelet plug, i.e. primary hemostasis. That would cause immediate bleeding. And again, he's already suspicious for a soft tissue disorder, but with a pathology report pending, he plays along and he starts to order coagulation studies. There are some simple tests in our armamentarium that can be helpful, right, in terms of thinking about bleeding, um, if, I'm, if I want to do my deductive method. And we have our uh, prothrombin time and our partial thromboplastin time, respectively. Both of them can be helpful in thinking about the common final coag pathway of the coagulation cascade mm -hmm. and the, pro the prothrombin time for the extrinsic 7, factor 7, 7A, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the PTT for the intrinsic, which I think are um, 8, 9, and 11, or 8, 9, 11, 12, plus the common pathway. So uh, what is her PT-PTT? Her PT is 12.9, which this laboratory is normal. Okay. Her PTT is 23.9, and again, that laboratory is normal. Okay. So these being normal, it doesn't totally rule out a coagulation disorder, but it makes it less likely that it is something to do with um, the extrinsic or the intrinsic pathway. It could be factor one or factor two. Mm -hmm. um, if it was a vitamin K deficiency, although that can affect factor two, it should also affect factor seven and is it nine and ten or vitamin K deficiency generally doesn't occur with mal just malnutrition. They're usually malnourished and on antibiotics. But speaking of which, is she is her diet okay? Cindy, the way he explicitly talked about the factors here kind of stuck with me. You know, he could have just asked for the PT and PTT. Instead, he runs through the factors that contribute to each before asking for the results. Is that surprising? I mean, that's the way it was taught in medical school. No, I'm not saying it's arcane knowledge. I mean, yes, I also remember the factors from med school. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe with some effort. I, I don't. <laughs> I'm sure you could recall them with some effort. Um, and... But to be honest, somewhere in the 10 years between when we learned the coagulation cascade and today, my brain just decided to stop caring about which factors were part of what pathway. And I justify this by saying that in the real world, as a general internist, being able to see an isolated PT prolongation, for example, and just recognize, okay, that's an extrinsic pathway problem. I should think about warfarin, vitamin K deficiency, liver disease. So most of that time, that abridged model of pathophysiology, that is good enough in daily practice. You're saying it's almost like there's a level of pathophysiology that's not worth remembering. Once I enter the clinical world, certain things just don't apply in real life anymore. I mean, don't tell my medical students I said that, but yeah, basically. Um, I feel like pathophysiology is kind of like an ocean. I could dive deeper and deeper, but beyond a certain depth, it's just too dark and uncertain and cold and sterile, and I drowned. <laughs> so that's why I was surprised that our discussant has the factors, the coagulation factors in his working memory. He retrieves those details with such ease. And there's a part of me that wondered, like, why does he bother to remember that? Should I bother to remember that? Isn't it distracting? This became a recurring theme during our interview. Over and over again, Dr. Wasserman would get very granular in his discussion of pathophysiology. And while Cindy and I certainly entertained the possibility that this was just because his teaching mode was engaged, he has a reputation within our group for just having prodigious, prodigious knowledge. It honestly, it felt like more than that. It felt like these asides were in fact part of his diagnostic process. It wouldn't be, it's less likely to be, I think, 
type 1 von Willebrand's, where you get factor 8 depletion, but acquired von Willebrand's disease with like a, uh, for, uh, whether it's from a high flow state or a, like a, like aortic paravalvular leak or um, a myelodysplastic syndrome, they often will have, they will have a normal von Willebrand factor level and a normal Ristocetin C test, and I don't really remember exactly the details of that. And they will have a normal factor eight and a PTT, but they're losing their large von Willebrand factor multimers that are the most important ones in terms of, of clotting. That's something I would think about. Um, so, so, uh, did she get an evaluation for that? Just to remind you of those results, remember both the quantitative and qualitative von Willebrand factor assays were normal, as was the factor eight activity assay. So it makes it less likely, but it's not sensitive at all for certain conditions. And the problem is the diagnosis is made by this von Willebrand multimer assay that is usually not done in most hospitals and is operator dependent. I would, you know, if I'm thinking she has acquired von Willebrand's disease, I want a good reason why, right? So I'm still looking. Make, I'm going to say that's less likely, but, but I'm going to look, look for something that would cause that. So by this point, just to summarize, Dr. Wasserman is skeptical of both platelet disorders and von Willebrand's disease, and the coagulopathies bucket is shrinking quickly too. So I think it's unlikely she has a congenital deficiency of clotting factors. Um, she could have an acquired inhibitor, which again, often you're talking about secondary to another disease. Mm-hmm. So uh, did she have a mixing study? Now she has a normal PTT. So usually you're going to be doing those in someone with an abnormal PTT. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of bleeding disorders, we're talking about like a dysfibrinogenemia, mm-hmm. which is very rare. Uh, it doesn't look like she has DIC. I mean, checking for a low fibrinogen or or increased D-dimers, did they do those? Or? The fibrinogen level was 264, which is normal. Uh-huh. I don't think there was a D-dimer that was sent. Okay, so... I don't, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know that I would go checking for levels of coagulation factors. You can have acquired factor eight deficiency from von Willebrand's disease. There may be other acquired deficiencies I can't think of that are not related to an, an inhibitor, an antibody, uh, that I don't know about. Are there? Do you know? Uh, so, uh, again, I'm just going to say I want to know what was in the eye. <laughs> if you're keeping count, this is now the third time he has asked for the surgical pathology report of that excised chalazion, and it's pretty clear he believes that the answer is there. So before we reveal the findings of that pathology report, we asked him what he's looking for on that, on that biopsy, what his leading diagnosis is. A- amyloidosis. Amyloidosis. So... Does she have any reason to have AA amyloid? Does she have a chronic disease that uh, associated with it? It's extremely unlikely she has familial Mediterranean fever. Mm. Does she have? Does she have some other chronic inflammatory disease? And does she have other skin abnormalities? Okay, that's fair. Uh, I'm not sure if you'd ask her if you have any chronic inflammatory yeah, disease. Yeah, right. 
But uh, she doesn't, for what it's worth, no, she doesn't, she was quite healthy until recently. Um, okay. Uh, skin exam? No, uh, normal. Okay. No hemarthrosis, no rashes. Now, you can get localized cutaneous amyloid, mm-hmm. and, and nodular can be systemic or, or cutaneous. Um, uh, does she have um, any history or findings suggestive of other things you'd seen systemic amyloid? So, uh, or in, in, in myeloma and or amyloid, does she have bone pain or evidence of bone injury with a high alkphos? Well, a uh, couple of things there. She doesn't have bony pain, per se. Uh, evidence of bone injury in the form of a high alkphos, you said? Yeah. Um, her alkaline faucet taste was 782 on admission. Wow. And, and um, do we have a GGT or a bony isozyme? Uh, we have a GGT, uh, uh-huh. not an isozyme. Uh, the GGT is 270, which is four times the upper limit. Okay. All right. Is there evidence of hepatomegaly or right upper quadrant tenderness or a distended gallbladder? So, uh, right upper quadrant tenderness, yes, uh, there's tenderness in the right upper quadrant and uh, there's a palpable liver edge three centimeters below the costal margin. And was there any hepatic imaging? Uh, such what? A sonogram. A sonogram. Mm, she did have an abdominal ultrasound. It showed an enlarged liver. 22 centimeters sagittally. Uh, the echogenicity was normal, and the portal vein and IVC were patent. The bile ducts were also patent. On the spleen? On the abdominal ultrasound? Yeah, was it mentioned? Uh, it looked like it was mildly enlarged. There's no measurement here. Okay, so she has a, a large liver, a mildly enlarged spleen, uh, high alk fos, high bile, without Obviate without large biliary duct obstruction or dilation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know you can have um, so things that would give you a high alkphos with a large liver, um, an infiltrative process. She could have a, a coagulopathy related to the liver, but I would expect the INR to be elevated. But I'm thinking, could she have uh, amyloid in the liver, right? It's one of the places you get amyloid, AL amyloid. You can get in the liver, the heart, kidneys. I, I'm just thinking she doesn't have an obvious coagulopathy, mm-hmm. and she has late bleeding post-op. And when I've seen uh, late bleeding, it's been non-platelet-related coagulopathy or something local. So, uh, uh, you know, and usually the something local is obvious. Uh, and maybe this wasn't a collasion. So the surgical pathology was initially interpreted as a lipogranuloma, but Congo red staining revealed birefringent deposits in a perivascular distribution, which is consistent with amyloid angiopathy. And this would explain her bleeding. The perivascular amyloid deposits led to blood vessel fragility. There are other ways in which amyloid causes abnormal bleeding. The amyloid fibrils can bind factors, for example, causing an acquired factor deficiency. But those mechanisms don't seem to be at play in this case. Yes, we should talk about blood tests for mo- monoclonal gonopathies. Did she have any? Um, what, what were you? A light chains. 
Her serum-free light chains, her kappa is elevated to 544, which is 15 times the upper limit of normal. The lambda was normal. Obviously, the ratio okay. is abnormal. So, I think we probably have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Is there any more information you want? Um, did they feel that this was enough information to make a diagnosis, or did hematology need to do a bone marrow biopsy? Remember that in order to make that diagnosis of AO amyloidosis, four criteria have to be met. The first is proving that there is amyloid deposition in tissues on biopsy. The second is showing that amyloid is leading to an actual syndrome, like cardiomyopathy or nephrotic syndrome. So check and check, right? In this case, we have heard of at least two syndromes, amyloid-related abnormal bleeding and possibly hepatic amyloidosis. Right. We also need to prove it's AO amyloidosis. Remember that there are dozens of proteins that can accumulate into amyloid deposits transthyretin, amyloid beta peptides, etc. And the ensuing clinical symptoms and treatments are completely different from one another. In AO amyloidosis, the amyloid deposits are fragments of light chains being produced by a plasma cell neoplasm. So you have to prove that the amyloid is made of light chains, and you have to prove the existence of the plasma cell dyscrasia. Mm-hmm. So the markedly elevated lambda light chains in this patient are highly suggestive of both. And she did end up having a bone marrow biopsy, which confirmed the presence of a greater than 10% uh, clonal bone marrow cells. She did not have an M protein. So the final diagnosis was, in fact, AL amyloidosis. So I was absolutely gobsmacked by Dr. Wasserman during this interview. It's remarkable if you consider that he first brought up AL amyloidosis as a possibility within the first five minutes of the interview after hearing just the initial case and asking two sets of questions. Not to mention that he heavily favored that diagnosis after just four more sets of questions. Her clinical stability, her hemogram and differential with a smear, the von Willebrand assays, and the PT and PTT. Right. And that was before hearing about her physical exam. That was before he knew about the LFT abnormalities, before there was really any indication, I think, that we were dealing with a multi-system disorder. So what accounts for his success? I'm curious to ask our listeners, if you got the diagnosis, great, tell us how you got it and bracket us on Twitter. But if you didn't get the diagnosis, why do you think that happened? When we asked this question to the core IM team after finishing the case, A couple of folks said it was a knowledge gap. They simply did not know that amyloid could present this way, with abnormal bleeding. But others actually knew that amyloidosis could do this, yet they were unable to recognize it in this case. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings up a key point, Cindy. Knowledge alone is insufficient. Knowing that amyloidosis can cause abnormal bleeding is insufficient. The knowledge also has to be structured in a way that facilitates its retrieval during the diagnostic process. And that framework, of course, is what we call a diagnostic schema, right? The very word schema is, is it's a Greek word. It means form or shape or figure. Schemas give shape to our knowledge. So we saw how Dr. Wasserman ran through his diagnostic schema for abnormal bleeding, which included, alongside platelet disorders and coagulopathies, that third category of reasons why people bleed, vascular and soft tissue problems. And it was in that context that his knowledge of amyloidosis was activated.
So we have seen one clinician use his diagnostic schema to great effect in solving a challenging case. What's our take-home message here? I'm a teaching attending. Does that mean I should be、uh, teaching diagnostic schema all the time on my rounds? <laughs> Cindy, that makes sense to me intuitively, but I also feel it necessary to say that the research into this question isn't conclusive. What we do know from studies published in the 1980s and 1990s is that expert clinicians are more likely to exhibit the use of schema in their diagnostic reasoning, whereas studies and non-experts tend to rely on more general. Hypothetical deductive methods of problem solving, but proving causality is difficult here. Is it the expert's use of schema that causes them to be successful at diagnosis, or is their use of schema simply an epiphenomenon of their expertise? Will teaching students using diagnostic schema cause them to become more successful diagnosticians? These questions haven't been definitively answered. That's probably not surprising, though. I mean, how would you go about designing those studies? Are you going to randomize students at your institution to receive standard versus schema-based instructions? And how forceful will you be?、Um, are you merely exposing the students to schema, or somehow making sure that they are used every time?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to mention, in the cognitive science world, schema are specific to the individual who possesses them. They're shaped by experiences and by context. A nephrologist schema for peripheral edema probably differs from that of an internist or cardiologist. So, whose schema gets taught? And if you are able to prove that instructing students with a schema for, say,、uh, metabolic alkalosis improves their ability to diagnose patients with this problem, how does that translate to other clinical problems like chest pain or chronic anemia?、Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound defeatist, like it's impossible to study. This in further detail. Several studies have, in fact, been published over the past two decades, and they offer some support for the effectiveness of teaching diagnostic schema to students. A lot of these papers were written by faculty from the University of Calgary and McMaster's University.、Uh, faculty there are thought leaders in this field. So, if the simple size of one, i.e., hearing Dr. Wasserman, is not enough to convince all program directors to change their curriculum, back to my original question: What should be the takeaway from this case? Well, Zhang,、um, as a junior clinician, the conference-going experience for me used to go like this: I would hear about a challenging case, the expert clinician who leads the conference would solve the case brilliantly, like Dr. Wasserman did. Sherlock style, and I will walk away all excited and entertained, thinking to myself, "Whoa, that was so cool!、Um, next time I have a bleeding patient, I'm gonna remember to check amyloid doses, and then I'm going to、uh, look so smart, just like him." You do, Cindy. Thank you. <laughs> well, now that I did some growing up after residency, I realize that that shouldn't be my takeaway. That line of thinking only potentiates availability bias. Instead, I should be asking myself, how do I incorporate the knowledge I just learned from hearing this case into my existing schema? How can I optimize the way I organize my knowledge so that it will be correctly triggered when I encounter a similar case myself? And if I can easily incorporate this new knowledge, is my current schema for the problem even adequate, or is that a sign that it needs to be completely restructured? Above all, am I thinking about the problem the way I should be?
It's worth noting that when we asked Dr. Wasserman if he himself was familiar with the actual term dynastic schema, he just kind of looked at us blankly and said he didn't know what that meant. Yeah, ditto for most clinical reasoning concepts. We asked him about problem representation, to use illness scripts, just stares. <laughs> it's truly that's true enlightenment, though, when wisdom is no longer effortful. Um, when you can only see the path and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for us disciples, though, if we do accept that schema are something that are worth developing, how do we go about doing that? We asked Dr. Wasserman how did he develop his schema for bleeding. How did it come to incorporate that third category of disease? It's I'm lucky that I knew that. I had to write a chapter about something to do with scurvy, mm-hmm. and reading about it, you know, came across this literature of you know. Well, what is, you know, I started thinking, well, what is a petechiae? Why do people get it? What is, per, you know, why do they get purpura? And you really need to include uh, vasculopathy in that. And anything that can cause petechiae or purpura can cause bleeding, right? So hemorrhage from, so that that was lucky. And, and I found it very interesting, and now it's just part of my schema. Like, it's nice when things make sense. They don't always make sense often can seem like we're just giving out a list of things that can cause something. Mm -hmm. And when you have these little, sometimes I feel like our, the way we teach the pathophysiology is more important as a heuristic tool to help people remember things than as an understanding of how disease works. Because often we're talking about things that we don't even that the specialists in the field don't understand. We're talking about our own understanding, but still heuristically, it can be very helpful. So I think that's a really important idea. Do you want to expand on that just a little bit more? Do you have an example? So for example, you know, I do a lot of consulting on psychiatry and um, trying to remember which medications make people dizzy and pass out. Mm -hmm. We talk about alpha adrenergic antagonism and which ones are antagonistic and which ones are less so Mm -hmm. because it seems to correlate. Um, So I bring it up. It helps people remember. But the truth is, is it's far from a linear correlation. It's poorly understood. And these hypotensive effects are probably mediated by other things. But I I bring it up because it helps the doctors taking care of the people And whoever I'm teaching will remember these agents can cause hypotension. Something that's always bothered me about medicine is the unsettled truth that is pathophysiology, right? Because with that uncertainty comes the danger of being seduced by the beauty rather than the truth of an explanation. Like when a student asks you to explain why something happens, you know, why does this medication have this side effect or how does this organ malfunctioning lead to that symptom? How often do you find yourself using an explanation that you've been taught or read or heard in passing that you yourself have never verified, but that you've held on to because you liked it, because it made sense? I acknowledge that I do that more often than I want to admit. And so that's why I find it so striking and liberating that Dr. Wasserman describes pathophysiologic explanations as a heuristic. Right? Recall that that word Heuristic refers to any problem-solving method that is often practical or useful without being perfect or optimal. And so he's acknowledging that our explanations are imperfect. They're often incomplete or oversimplified, or in some cases, they just turn out to be plain wrong. And yet, these are indispensable in our work and in our growth as clinicians, because it's by trying to make sense of things, by asking why, 
that we look for new and better ways to think about problems. In other words, diagnostic schemata and pathophysiologic models are inseparable. As we witnessed while listening to Dr. Wasserman work his way through this case, strengthen one and you strengthen the other. So we're not just learning pathophysiology to sound smart, Cindy. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> All right. So how did the patient end up doing? So fortunately, she did well. She was started on cyborg chemotherapy, and last I know, she was in remission. No more bleeding, no new organ problems, and no sign that her underlying plasma cell disorder is developing into multiple myeloma. Excellent! Thank you all for listening. Remember to claim your CME credit on the ACP website. It's easy to do. Just log on to www.acponline.org, go to CME-MOC, and under CME, click on Podcast. Again, if you are in training, send this episode to an attending or someone else. You think could benefit from this means of continuing medical education? All right, listeners, that should do it for this episode. As always, let us know what you think as our case formats continue to permutate. And remember, if you have a case you would like to submit for discussion, or someone you would like to come on and hear us discussing, or if you are interested in developing and hosting an episode, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at www.coimpodcast.com. Or send us an email at hello at coimpodcast dot com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at at coimpodcast. Thank you to Dr. Lloyd Wasserman as our discussant, as well as Drs. Neil Shapiro, Amy O, Shreya Trivedi, and Marty Fried for graciously serving as his foil. And special thanks too to our audio editors for this episode, Richard Chen and Harit Shah, along with our other Coriam colleagues. And an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining us with Coriam. I'm Cindy Fain, and I'm John Huang. See you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit Parker.com/purpose. Parker Engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. Ninety-three percent of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/podcast. That's Indeed.com/podcast. Terms and conditions apply.